Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. I'd like to begin by thanking Linda Ellsgood to uh, invite me to come back. Thank you so much. Um, this slide is not photoshopped. This was the tsunami a few years ago. That fella had no idea what was about to hit him. And what I'm going to talk about is something that most people in the world don't know, and that is how food sensitivities impact on chronic disease. LDN therapy is marvelous, just cutting edge, state of the art. Only people with courage are using it, and I, I hope that expands uh, dramatically. Uh, but it's a therapy to treat a condition. I'm going to talk about what might be interfering with the effectiveness of your protocols, and that is food sensitivities. And I start with this slide. This is in the Museum of Science in Florence. This is Galileo's finger. And Galileo bequeathed that all of his inventions could be on display for all of posterity as long as they also displayed his finger. It happens to be his middle finger. <laughs> True story. It was his last message to the church. <laughs> Who got the last laugh, right? <laughs> I put this up because I've sat where you are so many, many times in the last 30 years, listening to speakers, and hopefully they're good speakers, and my pen is writing furiously of, check this study, check this on this patient, read this, learn more about what this guy is saying. And I've got pages and pages of notes from a weekend event, and I've spent thousands of dollars to come to the event, to travel, to the hotel, the food, the registration, and I go back on Monday morning with pages of notes and don't have time to implement anything. I don't know, have you ever had that experience? Where there's so much more that you want to do than what you're capable of doing from what you learn, cutting edge stuff, but there's no time. So I came up with the idea for myself, if there's one thing, just one thing that I walk away from in a weekend seminar, that event was worthwhile, that I implemented into my practice for the rest of my career. Just one thing. I wish I could do 10, but if I did one, I felt it was a, a worthwhile event. So I hope out of this weekend, one thing that you walk away from is the desire to learn more about how food sensitivities may be setting your patients up and keeping them resistant to the therapies that you're implementing. So what triggers the systemic symptoms initiating the autoimmune syndrome? Uh, I'm going to give you, I was told I had 35 minutes, and now I have a little bit more time than that. I'm going to give you just a slight condensed version of a 14-hour training program, just to give you a big picture overview. Genetic predisposition, environmental insult, hypochlorhydria, pancreatic insufficiencies, medications, and surgeries contribute to inadequately digested proteins in the GI tract, irritation, inflammation, dysbiosis, increased intestinal permeability, increased load on liver detox pathways, increased immune complexes and general circulation, molecular mimicry, tissue-specific symptoms determined by genetics and antecedents, and the development of autoimmune syndromes eventually diagnosed as an autoimmune disease. This causes this, causes this, causes this, causes that. And we treat that without ever going back upstream. We try to some degree, but our emphasis is helping our patients feel well. 
I hope to show you that if we go back upstream along with our current therapies, that you get much more dramatic results across the board. And right there, oh, I love that. I'm going to do that one again if I can figure out. There we go. Let's see if I can do that one again. I love that one. That's where you can focus your attention. And that is, what are the triggers that set up intestinal permeability, pathogenic intestinal permeability? How, uh, what are the triggers to identify? And then what do you do to heal that environment? So the first case, a conjunctival tumor diagnoses Kaposi sarcoma. So here's a three-year-old girl who presented with a hemorrhagic conjunctival lesion in the right eye. The medical history revealed premature cessation of breastfeeding, intolerance to the ingestion of baby foods, anorexia, and abdominal distension in a three-year-old. So what's the first thing you think when that comes into your office? What's wrong with the gut? What's wrong with the gut? Her weight and height percentiles were subnormal compared to her age group. From 26 months of age, she had recurrent serous media with systemic antibiotics, which of course has some impact on the gut. Our initial visit showed that the visual acuities were 20-20 in both eyes, but what they found was a spider-like lesion on the conjunctiva. This is her eye. They had her look down and lifted the eyelid up. So you're seeing the pupil in the bottom of the photo, and that's a tumor in her eye. The differential diagnosis of such a conjunctival lesion includes Kaposi sarcoma, subconjunctival hemorrhage, malignant melanoma, squamous cell carcinoma, pyogenic granuloma, cavernous hemangioma, lymphoma, carotocavernous fistula, foreign body granuloma, and lymphangioma. Their presumed diagnosis was Kaposi sarcoma because mom was HIV positive. But her blood test for HIV antibodies was negative. So they said, wait a minute, what is this? What is this? So they wanted to do biopsy of the tumor. But the child had had, uh, and in order to do the biopsy, you have to put the child under general anesthetic. The child had been diagnosed with celiac disease two weeks earlier, and they put her under a general anesthetic in order to do the endoscopy and biopsy. The child had a reaction to the general. So the parents said, well, you know, of course we're, we want to know what this is, but our child's still a little not quite right from the last general anesthetic. We're going to wait a little bit. So the authors of this study, the ophthalmologist, said, we decided to wait and see what happened. Blood tests had shown that the girl had elevated antibodies to a protein of gluten and endomycium antibodies suggestive of celiac, and the endoscopy showed that she had celiac disease. Her parents did not want the child to undergo general anesthesia for the second time, so they decided to follow the gluten-free diet that had been recommended earlier, but wait a week or two before they had the biopsy of the child's eye. So they came back a week later to do the biopsy of the child's eye. That was the difference in one week on a gluten-free diet. They did not do the biopsy. They said, what is this? Let's just watch this and see what happens and it disappeared completely after two months. Two months on a gluten-free diet reversed what had been assumed to be Kaposi sarcoma, a conjunctival tumor in the eye. 
She was completely asymptomatic. The conjunctival lesion did not recur after nine months of follow-up. In conclusion, and this is their words, we present a very unusual conjunctival tumor in a patient with celiac disease that showed complete regression by a gluten-free diet. Prompt regression of the conjunctival lesion during gluten-free diets suggests a possible relationship to celiac and an autoimmune process. When you pull at a chain, the chain always breaks at the weakest link. It's at one end, the middle, the other end. It's your heart, your liver, your brain, your kidneys, the conjunctive of your eye. Wherever your genetic weak link is, is as you pull on the chain where it's going to manifest. That's why if you dial down to learn about gluten sensitivity's manifestations, there is no condition that may not be caused by a sensitivity to gluten with or without celiac disease. There's no condition that may not be caused by it. And in our full day programs, we've got uh, case studies with the MRIs reversing ALS on a gluten-free diet, completely reversing it. The lesions are gone in the brain. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's unheard of to see this. You just look at this and you go, what? Again and again, what? What? So can foods trigger pathogenic intestinal permeability? That's the gateway in the development of autoimmune syndromes is pathogenic intestinal permeability. And I'm not showing you the studies here today on that, but uh, if we can assume that is true for the moment. Among the several potential intestinal stimuli that can trigger zonulin release, which is the mechanism uh, that causes intestinal permeability is excess zonulin released by the epithelial cells of the intestines. Gluten and small intestinal exposure to bacteria causing its byproduct, LPS, lipopolysaccharides, are the two triggers that have been identified so far. And I put this one in here, impaired intestinal permeability is, and the underlining is mine, present in all subjects with adverse reactions to food, regardless of the type of immune reaction, whether it's IgE, histamine-based, or non-IgE. If you have an impaired reaction to food, you run the risk of pathogenic intestinal permeability. The intestinal permeability occurs in everyone everyone, when you have a sensitivity to a food and you eat that food. And in this study, when these analyses were carried out, all patients were on an allergen-free diet for a minimum of six months. And yet they still had intestinal permeability, pathogenic intestinal permeability. Why is that? Because the inflammatory cascade continues. You've got a bomb fire in there. You've got an activated immune system. You stop throwing gasoline on the fire. You stop the food that you're sensitive to, but the fire continues. You have to put the fire out. And that's why we talk about, and I just took 40 slides out of this presentation, how to heal intestinal permeability. But they are in the packet that's available to you, all the studies, all the dosages of the things to take. I'll give you a summary at the end, but I didn't think I had enough time to go through all 40 slides for you but you will have all of that information of the basics to heal intestinal permeability. And I'll show you a summary slide of it in a little bit. Here's a study that came out that dropped my jaw. This came from Schupan at Harvard. The present study looks at uh, confocal endomicroscopy combined with sequential food challenges in a group of IBS patients with suspected food intolerances, and they showed the structural and immediate functional mucosal changes that occur in the gut. These photos are remarkable. 
At baseline, the villi were closely attached to each other without much visible space between. So this is what the villi look like in our intestines. If you do confocal endomicroscopy, that's the photo on the left, or scanning electron mic microscopy is the photo on the right, the junctions are really tight up against each other. Then they expose these people with IBS to four common allergens, milk, wheat, yeast, and soy. What did they find? Within five minutes of exposure to food antigens, intraepithelial lymphocytes, the mechanism of one of the primary mechanisms in inflammation in your gut, intraepithelial lymphocytes increase, epithelial leaks, gaps formed, and intervillous spaces widened. This is what it looked like. So they had injected a dye into these people's bloodstream, and the dye leaked out from the capillaries out into the intervilli space. That's what you see in B. They're starting to come out, and by C, the white dye is out in the space, and the, and the joints are gapped far apart. Within five minutes of exposure to a common allergen. These are IBS patients. Increase in intestinal permeability is an early biological change that precedes the onset of autoimmune diseases. Such increased permeability could be due to environmental factors such as infection, toxin molecules, allergenic foods that possibly initiate the autoimmune mechanism. So is gluten sensitivity limited to celiacs? I put this one in here for those that aren't sure about that. It says, please tell me more about this imaginary fence. Right. So here's a study that came out last year from Holland and Fasano at Harvard. They aimed to look at gliadin, which is one of the peptides in poorly digested gluten, in terms of barrier function and cytokine secretion using intestinal biopsies obtained from four groups. Celiac patients who had just been diagnosed, so it's active, Celiac patients in remission at least one year on a gluten-free diet. Non-celiac gluten sensitivity patients, those are people that said, I have a problem with gluten, but the blood test didn't identify it, and controls that had no problem with wheat. What did they find? Increased intestinal permeability after gliadin exposure occurs in everyone, every human has increased intestinal permeability after exposure to wheat. Everyone. If you read the paper, they use the language in all humans. So whether or not you have symptoms just depends on it. Have you crossed that imaginary line yet? And the link on your chain is breaking. But everyone gets increased pathogenic intestinal permeability. Mrs. Patient, this is how I say it to patients, Mrs. Patient, the fastest growing cells in the body are the inside lining of the intestines. Every three to seven days, we have a whole new lining to our gut. It's kind of like the skin of a snake. So you have toast for breakfast, you tear the lining of your gut, but it heals. You have a sandwich for lunch, you tear the lining, it heals. You have pasta for dinner, you tear the lining, it heals. Croutons on your salad, a cookie. Day after day, after week, after month, after year, after year, until eventually one day you cross that imaginary line, the straw that broke the camel's back, you don't heal anymore. 
Now you get pathogenic intestinal permeability, and wherever the weak link is in your chain, that's where you start manifesting the inflammation, damaging the tissue, eventually causing dysfunction. The dysfunction continues until eventually you get symptoms. Does that make sense to you? It's a step-by-step -step progression, but every human, just read the studies. Oh, by the way, there's a slide of, here somewhere, but I'll tell you right now. I'm making all of these studies available to you, every one of them. So at the end, I'll, uh, I'll show you how to get the list, 27 studies that are in this presentation. They're all available to you. Because it takes time to get these studies. I spent the time to do it. I don't need to have you spend the time to do it to read this. I want you to get this, that this is one thing that you walk away with this weekend. This is one thing. Oh my gosh, I need to learn more about this one. So I'm making the studies available to you. I've done the footwork on it. Glidin activates the zonulin signaling, resulting in immediate reduction of intestinal barrier function and passage of glidin into the subepithelial compartment. This paper in the Scandinavian Journal of Gastroenterology was published 10 years ago. I read this paper then and I started talking about this and most people in the audience thought I was a nutcase because I said everyone has a problem with this. Now we have so much more science available that validates it. There are many studies that now show this. Many. All right. What's the mechanism by which LDN's anti-inflammatory effects work? At low dosage levels, naltrexone exhibits paradoxical properties, including analgesia and anti-inflammatory actions, which have not been reported at larger dosages. Naltrexone exerts its effects on humans via at least two distinct receptor mechanisms, the antagonist effect of muopioid, opioid and opioid receptors, other opioid receptors, and an antagonistic effect on non-opioid receptors, toll-like receptor 4. I'm going to show you why I did that whole introduction about LPS and gluten now. It is via the non-opioid antagonistic path, toll-like receptor 4, that LDN is thought to exert its anti-inflammatory effects. But what is the irritant that toll-like receptor 4 was designed to protect us from and that will inhibit the effectiveness of LDN. My friend Dr. Mark Houston from Vanderbilt said this so brilliantly. We have the same bodies as our ancestors thousands of years ago, the exact same bodies. What did our immune system have to protect us from? Was it polysorbate 80, or bisphenol A, or excess lead in the water? No, it was parasites, bacteria, viruses, and bugs. That was it. That was all our ancestors, that our immune system is programmed to fight against. Anytime you activate an immune response, your immune system thinks it's dealing with a parasite, a virus, a bug, or a bacteria. It responds exactly the same way. That's all we are programmed as humans to be able to do. And what's the mechanism by which we respond to a threat that comes internally into us. Mammalian toll-like receptor 4 is the signal transducing receptor activated by LPS. The activation of toll-like receptor 4 leads to activation of the inflammatory cascade via NF-kappa-B. So what is LPS? Lipopolysaccharide is the exhaust of gram-negative bacteria in our guts. It's just the exhaust. 
And if this exhaust can get through a permeable intestine into the bloodstream, it's then called endotoxin. And it accumulates, and we all know about the effects of too high a dose of endotoxin in our system. It causes over 140,000 deaths a year in the U.S. It goes to septic shock. It's endotoxin that comes from LPS. This is what killed my mother. So I know this one a little bit. Also, this paper that just came out this last year, about six months ago, look at the title of this paper, non-celiac gluten sensitivity triggers gut dysbiosis, neuroinflammation, gut-brain axis dysfunction, and vulnerability for dementia. They're identifying the link between what happens when you eat an antigenic food and brain dysfunction. And in this paper, they identified the molecular basis for the inflammatory activity of endotoxin involves toll-like receptor 4 that induces innate and adaptive immune responses to LPS. However, when pathogenic influence is excessive, meaning there's too much of this coming in because you have uh, pathogenic intestinal permeability, this induces immunopathology. Toll-like receptor 4 acts as a co-receptor for LPS. Now, that's important, but I'm here talking about foods. Now, foods trigger intestinal permeability. When you have pathogenic intestinal permeability, now these food molecules get in of the foods that you eat. They get into your bloodstream, and LPS that's in the gut gets into the bloodstream. It's the pathway that gets it in is when you eat antigenic foods, triggering intestinal permeability, or if you've been doing that your whole life, like we all have, and you've created a microbiome that is pathogenic, the microbiome itself continues to produce pathogenic intestinal permeability. So when you take the foods out of the diet that you've identified a sensitivity to, you also have to rebuild the microbiome. And there are many peptides besides the alpha-glidin that everyone checks for if you do a blood test. And you look for, do you have a sensitivity to gluten, and you order a gluten test from the laboratories, they're looking at alpha-glidin. That is the most dominant peptide, immunogenic peptide, that comes from poorly digested wheat proteins. But there are over 62 peptides from poorly digested wheat proteins that have been identified in the literature as being immunogenic. Why are we only checking one? There are some labs now that will check more than one, right? But don't get caught just looking at alpha-glidin. And there are many other components besides just the protein. Here, wheat amylase trypsin inhibitors have been identified as the most likely trigger of non-celiac wheat sensitivity. They're highly protease-resistant and activate toll-like receptor 4 complex in monocytes, macrophages, and dendritic cells of the intestinal mucosa. So if you've ever read the book or heard of the book Wheat Belly, Bill Davis is a cardiologist. He wrote that book, and he talks a lot about wheat amylase trypsin inhibitors as being the primary culprit, not the protein gluten. But they both come from wheat, so the message is get the wheat out, right? 
The more LPS or wheat peptides that pass through a permeable intestine, the stronger the inflammatory response and the more difficult for LDN to exert its anti-inflammatory benefits via toll-like receptor 4. Because the toll-like receptor 4 is all used up, being filled up, dealing with the, uh, anti the antigens that are coming through. The toast for breakfast, the bagel, the uh, sandwich at lunch, the pasta at dinner, all of those molecules, they're binding on toll-like receptor 4 because our immune system has this mechanism to protect us and, it, and it's the toll-like receptor 4 that the food molecules will bind into. There are nine toll-like receptors. It's toll-like receptor 4 that's identified uh, with food sensitivities and lipopolysaccharides. So does it make sense that if a receptor site is like a catcher's mitt, Mrs. Patient, your receptors are like catcher's mitts that sit on the outside of your cell, and the pitcher throws the ball to the catcher. But if the catcher, if, his, if he's got two balls already in his mitt, and the pitcher throws a fastball in there, then it can't get in, because the, the fastball just bounces out of the catcher's mitt. Does that make sense as a visual? Please nod your head yes, or shake your head no. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So if you take LDN, it's uh, for its anti-inflammatory effects, it's got to bind on the receptor sites. And if the receptor sites are full because of food sensitivities and a pathogenic intestinal permeability and LPS getting through into circulation, then LDN has less receptor sites to bind to. The autoimmune process can be arrested if the interplay between genes and environmental triggers is prevented by reestablishing intestinal barrier function. This paper came out in 2005 and has set the whole world in a direction of looking at pathogenic intestinal permeability. What, are, what is this thing about intestinal permeability and what might it be contributing to? We now know that there's a trilogy in the development of autoimmune diseases. There's a genetic vulnerability. There's an environmental trigger, the straw that broke the camel's back, and there's pathogenic intestinal permeability. So there are a number of papers that say now you can arrest the development of autoimmune disease by healing the gut. And by healing the gut, you reduce the influx of these food allergen peptides and LPS so that the LPN, or excuse me, so that the LDN that we're taking can get in and bind on receptors to get their job done. I propose that you will see much greater results, higher percentage success rate, and stronger success rates when you identify food sensitivities in your patients as a bottom line foundational approach every patient that comes in. Not only because of the dramatic changes that you see when you um, address the gluten sensitivity and reverse tumors and reverse ALS and reverse rheumatoid. And just go to the literature. You will see there are hundreds and hundreds of studies of the impact of reducing food sensitivities. So this is the gift. All 27 studies are available to you for free. Just go to my website, which is thedr.com the dr.com forward slash LDN, and they're there for you. And 15 of the 27 studies are the full articles. If the article is for sale, 
if they're selling it. I can't give it away for free. But the ones that were free just had to find the site and download it. They're all there for you, right? But those that are not available, the entire article, the abstract is there for you. And the link to the PubMed so that you can get the article if you want. How do we address pathogenic, how do we arrest pathogenic intestinal permeability? How do we put the fire out? This is where I let 40 slides go. But this is the summary slide. These are the basics to address pathogenic intestinal permeability. First, stop throwing gasoline on the fire. That's the elimination diet. You eliminate the foods the person is sensitive to. So you have to speak to your laboratories about what tests you want to do in order to identify is a person sensitive to particular foods. So you identify the foods that a person is sensitive to and get them out of their diet. Can they have a little? No, they can't. Mrs. Patient, when you get a vaccination for measles, they give you a shot of the bug measles. Your brain says, what's this? This is not good for me. And in your immune system, you have generals, Army, Air Force, Marine Corps generals sitting around with nothing to do. And your brain says, general, you now are general measles. Take care of this. General measles builds an assembly line. The assembly line starts producing soldiers that are trained as assassins to go after measles. Those soldiers are called antibodies. And your body starts making, and you have an assembly line, and your body starts making antibodies to measles. When all of the antibodies from the vaccination are gone, General Measles is watching this. And General Measles says, okay, turn off the assembly line. We don't need any more soldiers right now. None of us should have measles antibodies in our bloodstream right now, unless we've been exposed. But General Measles is vigilant the rest of his life. The rest of his life. If you're ever exposed to measles, he just has to flip the switch. He doesn't have to build the assembly line again. That's why if you go to Africa, you need vaccinations for yellow fever, dengue fever, all these strange diseases months and months before you go. But if you go back 15 years later, you just need a booster shot two weeks before you go. You just have to wake up general measles, right? General measles is called a memory B cell. The only food that's ever been identified, as far as I know, for which we make memory B cells is gluten. If you have elevated antibodies to gluten, it's for life, because you have memory B cells to gluten. They never go away. So you can't have a little. My cute answer is, you can't be a little pregnant. You cannot have a little gluten. And then I explain the general measles concept to them, and they get that. They understand. They don't like it, but they get it. Well, I feel fine if I have a little once in a while. We'll put that on your tombstone. <laughs> because you don't feel when you have elevated antibodies to myelin. Or you don't feel when you have elevated antibodies to cerebellum as it's killing off your cerebellum. I did 316 patients in my practice consecutively. Every patient, if they were two years old or older, and the oldest was 90, I think, they received a blood panel that included IgA, IgG, and IgM to gliadin, 
deaminated gliadins, gluteomorphins, that's another peptide of gluten that binds onto opiate receptors, casomorphins, that's the opiate peptide from dairy, milk butyrophilins, myelin basic proteins, cerebellar peptides, corn, soy, egg, and transglutaminase. Every patient got that blood test, every patient. Of those people, 64% of all of them had at least one elevated peptide to gluten. 64% of everyone that presented in my office. We'll publish this next year. Of those that had elevated antibodies to gluten, 26% of them had elevated antibodies to cerebellum. Because there's a cross-reactivity between Purkinje cells and some of the peptides in gluten. So your immune system makes antibodies to gluten traveling through your bloodstream, and there's the most common peptide is 33 amino acids long, but I'm just going to say A, A, B, C, D. I'm not going through 33 letters. So you have antibodies going after A, A, B, C, D. Well, those, those antibodies are going through the bloodstream everywhere, and they go up into the brain, and they go, oh, look, A, A, B, C, D, because the cerebellar peptides, the Purkinje cells, have that sequence, A, A, B, C, D, as part of their protein composition. Or your thyroid, or your liver, or your kidneys. It just depends on what tissue you're looking at as to where's the weak link in your chain where gluten may have a manifestation for you. That's why that paper about gut dysbiosis, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and dementia, and they just talk about the mechanism. They show you the studies on that. This is like, what? What? So Mrs. Patient doesn't feel when she has a piece of Kathy's birthday cake and she has any gluten in a month, but she eats a piece of cake. Oh, is that good? Maybe the next day she's a little tired, but she doesn't feel anything else. But if the weak link in her chain is her cerebellum, now she has elevated antibodies for at least two to four months from one exposure. You turn on the memory B cell to measles, you've got elevated measles antibodies for two to four months. Just ask any immunologist, and they'll go through it with you. One exposure, turn the system on, you start producing the antibodies, they stay for a while, but then after the mechanism turns off, you don't produce more antibodies, you still have the lifespan of the antibodies that have been produced, causing damage, right? So you don't feel, Mrs. Patient, when your cerebellum is being attacked for 26% of the people that have a sensitivity to gluten. You don't feel it. So you can't let them slide, say, I feel fine if I have a little once in a while. So excuse me for being direct about this, but we can't give them less than accurate information. You may not like it for yourself, and you may have a sandwich at lunch, it's up to you, but the information we give to our patients needs to be as current as we can be. That's why you've got all the studies. And this may take you three months to look through these studies, but just look and see if what I'm telling you is correct or not. We have to up our game in terms of, as a society, in terms of what we let our people eat. Are you kidding me? The New England Journal of Medicine now tells us that children born today have a shorter expected lifespan than their parents for the first time in the history of the human species. And we let them keep eating this food. Jeffrey Smith of the Institute for Responsible Technology just did, um, hosted an interview online with um, Zach, what's Zach's last name? Bush, thank you. 
marvelous, marvelous interview. We all need to listen to that interview about the mechanism of how GMO foods activate intestinal permeability and the whole cascade of what I just talked about begins. It just aired last Tuesday and it's online free. Just go to Institute for Responsible Technology and you'll find it. It's a one hour interview. I listened to it last night at dinner while I was eating my dinner. Marvelous, the science is unquestionable now about this. And when you listen to this, do you continue to eat GMO foods, understanding what they're doing to us? It's, it's beyond epidemic, it's pandemic now. Okay. So where may the systemic symptoms come from with autoimmune symptoms, syndromes? Genetic predisposition, environmental insult, hypochlorhydria, pancreatic insufficiency, medications and surgery cause inadequately digested proteins in the GI tract, Irritation and inflammation with an activated immune system causing intestinal permeability, increased load on liver detox pathways, increased immune complexes and general circulation, tissue-specific symptoms determined by your weak links, and development of autoimmune syndromes. And that's where we can focus our attention to all of this. Of course, uh, for a functional medicine practitioner, we might look at all of it, how much hydrochloric acid we're producing, and many other factors, but if you dial down on permeability, if you focus on that one, dramatic effects on the effectiveness of LDN therapy and also the general well-being of your patients. You can enhance the effectiveness of LDN therapy by reducing the noxious stimulation of toll-like receptor 4 from LPS and gluten peptides. Address the intestinal permeability. So we have a full online certification program that goes through all of this. It's 14 hours of training that's available for any of you that want to learn more. Uh, make sure to take care of yourselves this weekend. My background training was as a chiropractor, and so it's important to me that we all take care of our spines, right? So get a massage if you can. Make sure to tell those important to you how much you love them. And last slide, this is an excellent book for our patients to read by my friend Jeffrey Bland. And the last paragraph in this book really says it all in terms of how patients can um, focus their attention on being healthier. Throughout your life, the most profound influences on your health, vitality, and function are not the doctors you visit or the drugs or the surgery, the other therapies you've undertaken. The most profound influences are the cumulative effects of the decisions you make about your diet and lifestyle on the expression of your genes. And with that, I would say thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org.